This is the Banker's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring investment trends, solutions, and business issues relevant in today's private equity and finance industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Thank you for joining another episode of the Corner Series. I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell, partner uh, in the private equity group at McGuire Woods. Here at the Corner Series, we bring together thought leaders and deal makers at the intersection of healthcare and private equity investing. Thrilled to be joined this week uh, by Craig Sager, uh, Director at Provident Healthcare Partners. Craig, maybe give a quick intro of yourself and then we'll jump into a discussion. We're going to be talking about investing in primary care, but uh, Craig, give a little intro of yourself and Provident. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to, to join you today. Yeah, like you said, I'm a I'm a director here uh, at Provident Healthcare Partners. I was with the firm years ago for about four and a half years, had about five years on the buy side and a few rules, led the tri-state M&A team for Optum. And then I was at a private equity firm down in Nashville called Council Capital, where we were healthcare service investors, and then recently returned to the firm last year. For, for folks that may not be privy to Provident Healthcare Partners, this is our 25th anniversary this year. We are healthcare sell-side M&A. That's what we live and breathe. We sort of think ourselves playing in three buckets within healthcare services. One is physician practice management, single specialties, multi-specialties in primary care. Post-acute care is the second, home health hospice, anything really serving into the home or, or the you know sniff-elf setting. And then the third would be behavioral health with a number of kind of sub pockets within there. Personally, I lead our efforts in primary care and behavioral health. Craig, looking at uh, investing in primary care, uh, primary care is an interesting sector to me. For a long time, it was kind of viewed uh, by investors as a lower margin area. There's not a ton of kind of direct ancillary services. There's not uh, uh, the opportunity to kind of fold in ambulatory surgery centers uh, to connect to those practices as cleanly. And so for a long time, that was an area of less investment. What have been some of the drivers of the now pretty pronounced interest in uh, consolidating primary care providers? Yeah, I think you're spot on. It was once it was ignored. There's there's always been investments into the space, but over the last five years, and I think what we see here at Provident over the next five to ten, there's going to be a significant investment. You know, I would say, Jeff, the predominant reason is regulatory and what's coming from CMS and the innovative models that have been rolled out and are continuing to be rolled out across Medicare, Medicare Advantage, and commercial payers, and even and even Medicaid. So in primary care, we like to think about it as nonlinear in terms of growing a business. You know, if you are thinking about single specialties like an ophthalmology, a cardiology, et cetera, sure, there, there's a little bit of value-based care programs going on, but the predominant way to scale the business and to create cash flow is to see more patients, right? And that's what is a fee-for-service fee model is built around. In primary care, yes, there's an aspect of fee-for-service. And today, that still makes up more than half of you know, the payments that are flowing through the system. But CMS has pushed out a ton of different models, some pilot in nature, some that are going to stay here for, for the long haul. And when investors look at that, they say, 
there's about a million doctors in the country, 300,000 of them are primary care. There's an ability with primary care, given the, the cost that they control in the system, where if you aggregate enough docs under one umbrella, and obviously if you throw mid-levels in there, you can certainly create scale in the fee-for-service, but most importantly, you can drive significant savings to the system. And with the models out today and for the foreseeable future, there's a way There's a way on top of fee-for-service to, to really capture a lot of the value-based care payments back to the provider. So I think people get really excited about again, that nonlinear growth that you don't see in other specialties. It's also interesting that uh, in a lot of different sectors, the the typical buyers would be kind of a private equity uh, fund or a private equity backed platform that is just getting bigger. Uh, You grow that and then you might sell to another bigger financial sponsor. In primary care, the grouping of buyers is a little different. It's very heavily invested in by kind of private equity funds that are consolidating, but also on big health system, the kind of Optum United uh, healthcare versions of the world. How would you describe that dichotomy of different kinds of purchasers and do they have different objectives? Yeah, I think they, they definitely do. I guess we'll start with private, equ- private equity, which is common across healthcare and obviously really all segments in the industries. Private equity's ultimate goal, right, is to get a return in five years, sometimes it's three or sometimes it's seven years, but they have a duty to their LPs to, to get a profit back. And so they look at it more from a short window standpoint. How can we build a really interesting primary care business, be differentiated, but ultimately, you know, flip it to another private equity firm, or flip it to an Optum, et cetera, and get a return out. Listen, and they're, and they're, they're, players that do things the right way, maybe not so much the right way, but that's primary care that we all kind of know. The other big piece is what we'd call the pay, the pay buyers, right? So when you look at what Optum has done, right, and they're the ones that really rocked the boat, call it 13 years ago when United Health Group rolled out Optum and really became, they have other arms, but they, they wanted to own the physician from, the, from a payer standpoint. You know, payers, as we know, they're capped at their profits, right? They they have to pay out 85%. And so Optum said to themselves, well, if we own and employ these physicians, we're not capped anymore. So the MOR is not to be 85%. It can go lower, right? If we can if we can build a really strong system and and, and, and strong clinical care, et cetera. And so the Optum um, CVS obviously made a huge splash earlier this year with Oak Street Health pouring in almost $11 billion into that asset. Village MD is with Walgreens is another massive player. And, and so those, those, that cohort of buyers or cohort of primary care strategics, their angle is very different. They're in it for the long haul, right? If you look at the CVS acquisition on Oak Street Health, they paid almost $50,000 per patient, right? No private equity firm in the world would ever be able to do that. But when you're CBS and you're a Fortune 5 company with that healthy of a balance sheet, you're in it for the long haul, right? It might take 20 years to recoup that investment. But what you're trying to do is build an incredible platform serving the country. So, so yeah, they're, they're, I would say they're vastly different. Although from a patient standpoint or, or people going through the system, you might not realize it. 
it also uh, kind of adds to the allure of the sector for private equity investors, I think. Uh, when you look at some of the other sectors, one of the lingering questions is, okay, you, you acquire a platform, you do a whole series of add-ons, you sell to maybe a bigger private equity fund who does some version of the same thing, who sells to a bigger one. What's the end game? What are the last buyers? Is it about the public markets? Is it uh, a big uh, kind of consortium of large institutional investors? But kind of the back-end scenarios of that progression can be a little difficult to know exactly how that's going to play out. And kind of one of the maxims in investing is it's dangerous to buy something when you don't know who the ultimate purchaser is. And these consolidations in, in primary care in particular have an easier to envision back-end scenarios where you have these massive kind of companies like uh, CVS, like uh, United Healthcare, that can be those back-end purchasers. It changes some of the dynamics for the private equity investors as well. Yeah, I think that that's, that's absolutely correct. And I think what, what what's really exciting about the primary care market today and where we're going is it has evolved so much, right? So private equity 10 years ago, it would have to be a perfect asset that's probably already taking a lot of risk with a really strong pop health team, et cetera, to really get in there. Today, with all the programs that are rolled out with a lot of operators and systems in place that can really expedite the growth and and, and really figure out value-based care, I think private equity has come around significantly in terms of getting that confidence and comfortability that in five years, they can build a really, or they can buy a company, leverage what's built, and then take it to that next level with operators they know in their, in their network and different ways to play it. You mentioned uh, Oak Street, which I think is a super interesting uh, company in, the, in their evolution. Um, initially, the deals that we saw like Oak Street were all kind of Medicare Advantage plays. Um, the landscape has evolved since then. How would you describe the landscape of strategies between Medicare Advantage dynamics and then other strategies? Yeah, I think, listen, um, Medicare Advantage for years and even to this day now is is what a lot of investors and the strategics will target to get into. Medicare Advantage for a number of reasons, you know, from patients being a little bit more tapped in and want to go see their doctor and so attributions higher, the savings there is, it can be really large. Um, that's really been the crown jewel for people. And, and there are a lot of models today, especially down in, in Florida and a few other target markets, that's where people are playing the game. And Oak Street Health is, is it's an MA business, right? And if you talk to CBS, talked to them last week, I mean, that was the best asset on the market. They they talked to every company under the sun and, and ultimately pulled the trigger. But what is exciting, you know, outside of MA is that in just your regular Medicare population with MSSP ACO, obviously REACH ACO, which came out about a year and a half ago, there's different programs now where people are driving savings. And I think although the MA penetration rate is continuing to grow over Medicare, you know, the Medicare population is still very vast. And the models out now, I think, get people excited where they can they can play the MA game, right? Like Optum grew up doing, CVS is doing, and others, um, but they also have models within Medicare they can do as well. And then, of course, certain markets, if it's more managed Medicaid, frothy, if you will, people are starting to play that game as well. And then all the commercial payers 
depending on the market, will enter you know PMPM models or some capitated arrangement. So MA is still the leader in the clubhouse, if you will. But I think people like to diversify and and offer services and have programs for all the end populations. The you mentioned kind of commercial payers and the evolution there has felt markedly slower. Uh, getting kind of full co- capitation contracts with commercial payers is still pretty difficult, and it feels like we're in the earlier innings of the expansion of kind of true value-based contracting with, in, in the sense of full capitation into commercial payers. How would you describe kind of that evolution, and do you think it's going to pick up steam here in the, in the next few years? I, I think it'll continue to grow. I don't know if it's going to grow significantly in the sense that when investors look at where where do the costs lie from a patient standpoint and people that have commercial coverage, generally speaking, are maybe $12,000 a year, if not half of that, right? And so you have to have a lot of patience, right? If you're going to say 500 bucks patient to really make it worthwhile, from like a shared savings standpoint, whereas Medicare, Medicare Advantage, especially if you're serving in the geriatric population where patients can be up to $50,000, $60,000 a year in total cost of care, you can you can drive by the $10,000 per year on a patient, right? So you don't need that many patients to do it. So I think a cost is, is, an, is an item that investors are aware of. It's harder to make, to make it work in the commercial population. And then secondly, just contracting, you have to go to every single individual payer and every individual market and make that happen. Whereas, you know, to a degree, you have to do that in MA, but in Medicare, right, you're going to the government or you're going to an ACO and, and you can make that work. So there's just some um, logistics with the commercial payers. It's a little bit harder. But yes, I, I think it's going to grow. I just, I still think we're a ways away from you're seeing really innovative commercial value-based care models out there. In looking at how these businesses are constructed, there's also some interesting divergences to my eye. I mean, you look at uh, Oak Street and I'd describe them as kind of principally just the primary care providers, and then they will control the spend of uh, specialists, but they're usually not employing them. Whereas uh, other models like here in Chicago where I live, DuPage Medical now called Dooley, they, they started with kind of primary care providers and then they've got lots of specialists as a part of their organization. How would you describe that dynamic in the terms of how you structure the growth? Yeah, I think people have different philosophies. Like, you know, if you just take Optum, right, they have, you know, assets all across the country for their physician group in some parts of the country, like in California and Florida. It's predominantly all primary care. Some contractor physicians, a lot of employed physicians, they ha- they don't have a lot of multi-specialty assets. Look in Texas or in New York or the tri-state where I was, and they've got you know over you know thousands of doctors, and the the lion's share are primary care. That's what that's what their strategy is. But I mean, they've got in in New York, they have hundreds and hundreds of doctors that are single specialties they have they own ASCs right with SCA that was a big investment for them they own urgent cares they're now they're doing home health so so that that's one strategy to point in certain markets and then others like Dooley for example like they believe that 
the campus approach or having a one-stop shop for patients as opposed to referring out of the network or referring to a non-duly provider is, is the strategy because they want to control it all. And I think with that, it just comes significantly more investment and management of just other variables. I think some groups rather just think for the primary care approach. So I don't think one's better than the other. I think the multi-specialty approach, like a true multi-specialty, like you have to have imaging centers, ASCs. I mean, to build a true outpatient model, that investment just from CapEx and infrastructure is significant. Putting on your uh, banker hat a little more specifically, when you're out talking to groups that might be a target, one of the dynamics around primary care is that to do the types of value-based contracting that we're talking about, you really need to have a certain scale. And from your perspective, does that kind of push you towards in order to be the starting platform, uh, you need to have a certain kind of EBITDA range scale? And, and what do you think that scale is? Yeah, you know, I would say we work with groups that are complete fee-for-service shops, right? And they've got scale and investors have different, they'll say, there are two things. One, I can't invest in that business. I need to see them move the ball and risk. The execution for us, it's too risky. Or the, the other viewpoint on that is, I actually like that. I can probably get in at a lower price. We have a team, we have experience in sort of making that conversion to value-based care. In terms of like what scale moves the ball, if you will, to actually get into frothy value-based care relationships, it, it really depends on, on, your, on your lives. But what I can tell you is, you know, there's certain you know, if you want to get into an ACO, a lot of times, you know, you need, five, you know, a lot of numbers, 5,000 enrolled beneficiaries. And you, you know, that's, that's pretty significant, right? And so that's why a lot of times you'll join more of a provider-led ACO where you kind of come together with other provider groups, you kind of all share in getting to that scale that you need and you still get some savings. And in the MA world, it, it's similar, right? It's really hard to contract with Blue Cross Blue Shield MA or UHC MA, if you've only got 800 attributed lives, like they've got bigger fish to fry. But I would say that Agilon, Alidade, these value-based care enabled companies that have come in, in the equation of the last 10 years, they aggregate companies where, and lives from companies that are a little bit smaller, but you can still come together and like the, like the MSSP ACOs and actually start taking risks. So there's options out there so if you're small and even if you're predominantly fee-for-service today, don't feel like there's not interest. There's interest. We just got to find you the right relationship, whether before you go to market or potentially, you know, your, your partner from an investment standpoint. Looking forward, the market up to this point in 2023 has been a bit choppy for provider services and physician consolidation. What's your prognosis for the rest of 2023 and looking into 2024 for deal activity in this sector as a, compared to other sectors? Yeah, I mean, I think we're obviously, like you said, we're in an interesting spot in the M&A environment for credit, debt reasons, et cetera. I think valuations have, generally speaking, softened and deal flow is down a little bit. But at the end of the day, you know, going into next year, 2024 and beyond, for really good assets, you know, whether it's primary care or elsewhere, there's too much capital out there that has to be deployed for people not to, to pay up and, and, and make these investments. So, 
yeah, I, I do. I think the back half of 23 is going to be really strong. No, but I think for those out there that have, you know, a primary care business or multi-specialty business, that's integrated, growing, strong clinical care, either has taken some risk or is, is starting to consider that. And we can underwrite it to, you know, what, what can we get investors comfortable with? There's always going to be interest in this sector. It's growing too fast. It has the most physicians. And at the end of the day, if you listen to CMS, this is where the payment models are going. I still think that uh, kind of this sector is the most interesting uh, provider sector kind of in the market from a private equity perspective. Uh, I think more than almost any other, the ability to bring together capital and expertise can really move the needle. And and that's often a a catalyst for private equity investment. Uh, So I think we're going to see continued expansion and evolution uh, uh, for quite a while. But Craig, I think we'll uh, wrap it up there. This is a super interesting sector. Your insights have been super helpful. Thanks a ton for uh, joining me. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Banker's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.